Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Canadians women's soccer team is on top of the world after they made history on Friday by winning the gold medal. Now that they've inspired so many, are the governing bodies equipped to capitalize on the expected wave of interest? And while other provinces may not agree with Quebec's decision to impose a vaccine passport system, the move appears to have support from the Canadian business community. Mark Agnew, VP of Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, joins us to talk about that. And we remember one of Ontario's great premiers, William Davis, who passed away at age 92 this past weekend. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Olympics, which are finished now, the closing ceremonies were just yesterday. But I want to talk about Canada's performance, which I think exceeded expectations, and the implications and ramifications of some of those performances. What it's going to do, not just to the athletes that participated, but maybe to the next generation or two of athletes. And uh, we'll start off with soccer, which is one of the big stories, of course, especially from Canada's standpoint, women's soccer team. Uh, the women's soccer team's golden moment arrived. Global's Moses Woldu has the details. Match by match, the Canadians knocked out Brazil, their arch rivals, the U.S., and the only undefeated team in the competition from Sweden, 3-2 in penalties. Soccer fans here at home and family members of the team celebrating as one. I feel incredible right now. I'm so proud of Julia. Fantastic. I was a little nerve-wracking, but it went in. Doesn't matter. It went in. Whoa! COVID impacted everybody, obviously, and impacted the, the Olympic in itself. So I think where when we see where she was and where she is now, that I think is the most proudest moment that we have as parents. The day was also historic on another front as Quinn becomes the first trans and non-binary athlete to win gold. So many different stories about uh, what happened to the game itself, the gold medal, and, uh, well, what are the ramifications going forward? To talk about all of this, so pleased to welcome to the program Melanie Bradley. Melanie is the general manager of Brams United Girls Soccer Club in Brampton. Uh, she's coached uh, a few of the people that we saw starring, of course, Ashley Lawrence, uh, Kashida uh, Buchanan, and Adriana Leon, all folks that, uh, that she has coached at one time. Uh, first of all, Melanie, thank you so much for joining us today. Glad you could be with us. Thank you for having me, and, and uh, you know I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. Well, I'm, first and foremost, your thoughts as you watch these uh, incredible athletes through the tournament. Uh, uh, we had great expectations, I guess, because of past performances. Uh, I know that we talked about 2012 in, in London, and I know a lot of the people on that team still had rather bitter memories of that, but uh, we wanted to see what was happening going forward and you know we've seen some bitter disappointments some bad calls by some of the officials from time to time uh and i don't want to suggest melanie that everything went their way because there was a great deal of adversity that they had to overcome wasn't there yeah for sure i mean uh you know these these girls as you mentioned they've been uh, some of them have been playing together since uh rio and and then in london and you know, fought very hard there to, to secure a bronze back-to-back, which was, uh, you know, very historical on its own. Um, but, uh, you know, they stayed with this team, and then you've got uh, so much depth to this roster, and you've got some girls, uh, you know, like Julia, who, you know, scored the winning penalty kick and is only 20 years old. Um, and that in itself, I think, is a, is a huge story as well. Um but they, they've been working hard for this. We've, we've seen a turnover and coaches where, you know, Herdman handed the team uh, to Beth Priestman. And uh, she's done a phenomenal job of, of making sure that all those players uh, touch the field and, and give their little bit of character to the team this whole tournament. 
talk to us about the coaching on this. I mean, that's that's right into your wheelhouse, of course. And uh, there's there's so many different elements to this. And you say the coaching change, and there was a little concern at the time. Well, you know, uh, what's this going to ha- do happen to the team? What kind of an eff- impact it's going to have? Uh, now, of course, she was already on the coaching staff as an assistant coach. But is was that easier in the transition stage for for the the team to actually accept her as the head coach then? Yeah, I mean, I, I now I serve on the operational administration side, and, and uh, unfortunately, I wasn't the coach formerly for Ashley and Kadisha. Uh, I was a young player myself when they were on the field, but uh, you know, it, it was very important that you know John did a good job of uh, mentoring Bev, and and I know that transition Canada Soccer, you know, as as our national body there, provided great support in that transition and, and making sure that. Uh, the, the model that they had that John had started with those players continued on. Um, and you, you still even have players that maybe have retired, uh, you know, from playing professionally or playing with the national program that still stay in touch with that team and, and uh, have supported. They were, they were just as much part of this journey. Um, one of my favorite moments that I've been seeing on Twitter is uh, the, the players when they had their medal in Tokyo, there have been calling their, their former teammates back because they've still been part of this journey. Um, so again, this, this team is very unique in the fact that, uh, you know, even though there was a transition in coaches, uh, a lot really stayed the same and, and that, that passion stayed the same throughout all of that. You want to talk about how the uh, the nation was behind uh, this team, and I just I saw the TV ratings. I'm sure you did over the weekend too, Melanie. Yeah. Uh, Friday morning for that game, 4.4 million uh, watched the game on CBC uh, with their Olympic coverage. Uh, that's the most watched event uh, from Tokyo here in Canada, uh, among some very good events. But it just shows that this 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 team just captured our imagination and captured our hearts even before they won that gold. Yeah, I mean. Uh congratulations to cbc for posting that because that's a that's a big statistic um for us to have out there i think it's very easy for people to often uh turn to say you know we don't watch women's sports or you know you won't get the same revenue out of of a women's soccer game as you would a men's um and that statistic i think just blew uh i know it blew a lot of that up and it's a very important one and, and data is important when we start to talk about um you know, moving forward and, and the big discussion right now, and I have to touch on it, is that we need a professional women's league here in Canada yep. mm-hmm. um, or even just to have a, a professional women's team representing Canadian, um, you know, in our, our uh, in the NWSL, which is an American league. Um, but it's, we're very capable. We've got the talent here clearly, um, and, and it's, it's time now to take that step forward. Well, especially with these incredible athletes leading the way and and i know that that was a concern for men and women's soccer and uh, they've kind of addressed the men's need a couple of years ago of course forge fc and a number of other teams are, are, are about and that's a development league i mean we need to emphasize that and i think that's what we're looking for here but it, it, i think it dovetails very nicely into what i wanted to ask you about with your experience though melanie is let's talk about going forward here about programs about uh, about mentoring and about teaching uh, we always wanted to to see all these well, young boys and girls it was, of course, at their young age, on soccer pitches all over the country. Uh, what's this going to do to the program? Well, we've seen how it's benefited the, the women's program, of course, with the gold medal and, as you mentioned, a couple of bronzes in the last couple of Olympics. Uh, so that's happening. How do you maintain that? I mean, I, I'm getting the sense uh, that uh, the, we're seeing, going to see a large influx. Sean Fitzgerald in The Athletic wrote about this the other day. Uh, he asked, uh, rather rhetorically, I guess, are national and provincial government bodies for Canadian soccer equipped to capitalize on the expected wave of interest in the game? Uh, is there going to be an investments in improving coaching at grassroots level? Uh, those maybe are not necessarily rhetorical questions. They're questions I think that we have to have addressed, don't we? 
For sure. And I mean, I know we always look to our national and provincial bodies, which we should. Um, you know, they, they obviously provide us the guidance and direction um, that we should be going. But I think, you know, uh, for myself, I work for a grassroots organization here in Brampton, a phenomenal organization. Uh, and many of us are across this country that have capacities, such as leaders of organizations. Um, maybe we are a coach, maybe we uh, run a, a grassroots club, or maybe we run an adult organization, right? And um, I think we have a responsibility as well to look at uh, what we're doing at each level. And are we promoting female coaches? Are we pro- pro- promoting female um, match officials or referees? And are we making sure that, you know, uh, girls' soccer is accessible? Um, and, you know, we, we're always facing financial barriers and we're working towards that. I think then we start to look at, okay, our financial barriers, can we have uh, good sponsors and investors come forward? And, and um, you know, as I said, we've, we've hopefully put that comment of people don't watch women's sports in the past now, and they can start to come forward and say that this is a, a good investment for them as well. Are you confident that's going to happen, that the money will follow? Um, I think, you know, I, I'm looking at the momentum and I, I truly do believe that we can start to get some investments coming in. Um, I would I would love to see what we've seen in the NWSL where uh, we've got professional male soccer stars uh, purchasing franchises. And, uh, you know, we saw Josie Altador, uh the other day rocking an NWSL hoodie. And who knows, maybe he's looking at bringing a, a Toronto NWSL team here. And, and uh, you know, how phenomenal would that be? So I think... Hopefully we start to see some of these male professional athletes or, uh, you know, the MLSC might look to, to make an investment in this as well. Um, but we, we have to keep speaking up and we have to keep showing interest in this. Um, the one thing that we love to, to promote here at Brams United is even moms taking their daughters out to watch soccer games. Um, you know, it's, it's societal for us to say that uh, dads take their, their sons, but why can't a mother step away for the night and go watch, uh, you know, Forge FC play York United, uh, right? So um, these are things that we need to start doing maybe at the grassroots level make a huge impact because, um, you know, our provincial and our national bodies, they are pushing, uh, but they need us as a whole unit as a country to, to help and support them on that. What about government support, though? I mean, that's really what it comes down to. You know, these these fabulous agencies that you talked about and associations are only as good as, as the revenue that that can go their way to try to you know, to do the things that we've talked about. I know at the municipal level, I think we've talked about this on the program before, and I know you certainly see it in Brampton. Uh, you can't build enough soccer pitches. I mean, you know, the, in, in Hamilton area in London, I know, having talked to some of the city councillors, they're converting old baseball diamonds because baseball registration has gone down. Everybody wants to play soccer, and, they, and they're trying to get keep up with that and that's wonderful to try to make that accommodation but at the same time the coaching has to be there too and that's a key part of this yeah for sure and um you know i think that's a good point about the the government funding and and providing more uh grants and subsidies that support uh coach education i mean we, we do provide for school education and maybe there's an opportunity because uh, these are these are still people that are giving back to our youth, and so I think it's important to to invest in that. We know that sports keeps kids, uh, you know, not only healthy but in a physical manner, but in a it's good for their mental health. Um, it keeps them busy. It, it supports their school as well. So I think you know we need to look at it as that. Like it, that's a good investment for us to to put our money towards um, because overall it's going to impact our youth in a positive way. Um, And, you know, a good statistic is, uh, you know, how many executive directors formerly played sports, right? I think it's over 90%. So, um, 
we've got to start looking at investing here in Canada a little bit more in our sports, not just soccer, but all of them, I, I truly believe. Um, because when you go to the U.S., uh, I remember as a player going over and, and you had 10 soccer pitches in one park. And where do you see that mm-hmm. often here, right? Um, I mean, they've done a great job of, of creating these venues that, that support the capacity. But your point earlier in a conversation, I think, is, is well placed here. Uh, how do you get to that next level? How do how do the girls get to that next level? And the, there's a, a pattern that develops, and we've seen this, I guess, for generations, really, Melanie. Uh, the athletes that are showing great promise in soccer or golf or whatever it might be, uh, invariably will end up at a UN, United States university because the coaching is there, the money is there to train them. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, people like Corey Connors, who's having a, such a great year on the PGA Tour, uh, Mike Weir when he won the Masters. I mean, these are all guys that got their training down there same with soccer some of the, the great soccer players that have come up through the system here eventually end up going down there through scholarships and, and you're right and then you have to ask yourself well what, how, how do we attain that level of coaching in this country I would think winning a gold medal for the for the the women's team is, is a very very strong move in that direction for sure I mean the, I think the gold medal is just like a statement of uh, you know we can do it and we need to start making those investments um, but again, it's, it's going to take some huge corporate sponsors to come through and, and start to, to support it that way. Um, I think, you know, even at the school systems, we've talked about it, you know, could we, could we support our student athletes a little bit more as well? Um, but, but talking about opportunities for coaches and, you know, even referees or players, again, it, it's going to go back to having a domestic professional league here for women because, uh, the reason that a lot of our athletes are having to play in Europe or in the U.S. right now is because there isn't anything here uh, for them. And, mm-hmm. and maybe what happens as they get older um, and they have to retire from their European leagues, I'm sure they would love to be able to come back home and play a year or two back home with their family and friends. Um, and then you've got women that have played and won an Olympic medal who could be uh, a a coach of a professional team here in Canada, um, but we just don't have that opportunity. So, you know, we have seen a couple of our former Canadian stars that are now coaching in other countries and, you know, we're really proud and happy for them, but I think we would love to, we'd love to see them here in Canada. Right. And, and be able to have them continuing to also come back and give back to the grassroots programs and to continue and to inspire the next generation of uh, boys and girls here in Canada. Um, so again, I think a huge thing is just starting that investment here, uh, looking at that NWSL franchise, whether in Toronto or Vancouver. Um, I'm sure even here in the GTA, we could have come in with a Hamilton and support Toronto in that in that franchise, right? So mm-hmm. um, I think, and again, that's got to be another big part of this is that um, we tend to have our egos get involved and say, well, it's only a Toronto or it might only be a Hamilton. I think that we've got to put that aside right now and come together uh, and say that, okay, well, we've got a couple fields and resources and we've got a couple great coaches. Let's get this done. Um, and, and then we can grow from there, right? Well, and uh, we've got to keep the conversation going, and that's our role, I guess, as, as spectators yeah. and as fans. I got, I got about a minute left. I got to ask you because you know, over the weekend, as we got talking about uh, the the great performance of the girls out there, especially in Tokyo, a lot of people are already looking four years ahead to Paris and thinking, well, uh, can they repeat? Uh, you yeah. mentioned Julia; they got the winning Julia Grasso; they got the winning goals. Only twenty years old, uh, and Stephanie Labbe, the goalkeeper, incredible. And Christine Sekulik could probably play as long as she wants. Uh, just she's just an incredible. 
incredible presence on on the on the, the pitch yeah. uh, no matter what and uh, and she obviously is the spiritual and, and emotional leader as well as an incredible leader on the field for the team as well uh, yeah. th- there's a there's a lot of promise as great as this team is there's a lot of promise for the future isn't there yeah I again I'll go back to the depth of this team and I think um, Bev the coach did a great job of making sure that I think it was 22 of those players got fitted and hit that field. Um, and so really they've all, they've all had experienced uh, an Olympic level, um, uh, performance, right? And so they are ready, I think, you know, for the next four years. Um, you still got talent at the U17 and U18 teams that, uh, <laughs> the nation might not have seen just yet, but we know they're coming up. We know some of those players. So, um, again, I think Canada soccer has done a great job of coming up with a model that, is achievable by all these this coaching staff and, and these players. And you've got uh, a former teammate still supporting and providing mentorship to those young players. So th- this country is in great hands. It is. And, uh, well, it's folks like you and your dedication to the sport, uh, to the future of the sport as well, that are going to be uh, the foundation for that, Melanie. Thank you for the great work that you've been doing so far, and thanks so much for the time today. Really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. Take care. Melanie Bradley, General Manager of Brams uh, United Soccer Club and uh, women's soccer, especially uh, at the elite level, uh, in pretty good hands. But uh, that point we were making during the conversation about making sure that 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 development era and that development program is going to be in place is going to be a key part of that, too. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to talk about uh, vaccine and vaccine passports. We mentioned at the beginning of the program that uh, our American friends are are allowed to visit us once again. Those who are fully vaccinated are allowed to come across here and shop and spend some time here, uh, you know, vacation here. I know a lot of Americans love to come to Ontario in the summertime and spend some weeks up in our beautiful north country or cottage country. And a lot of them are going to be doing that now, at least for August anyway. But it's all on the premise and on the condition that they show proof of vaccination. So uh, this is what I find rather incongruous about this, that it, the government's saying, okay, you have to show us proof of, or you can't come in. Uh, but Canadians, well, you don't have to show us, not necessarily. Uh, the prime minister has already said, look, if this is a provincial responsibility, it's their call. And, uh, well, Doug Ford here in Ontario and Jason Kenney in Alberta both said, no, they're not going to institute uh, a proof of vaccination policy. Now, juxtapose that with the uh, story that we heard last week when we had biostatistician Ryan Imgren on the program, who has been tracking COVID and tracking new cases and tracking just how this can have an impact on on businesses. And as Ryan told us, uh, he says there is no regular world without mandating vaccines. Unfortunately, I don't think we're ever going to hit 80 to 90 percent of our population until we get the under 12 population vaccinated and until we start to mandate vaccines for certain things like going out to the grocery store, indoor dining, things like that. We need to start to mandate vaccines because if not, we will never hit that 80 to 90 percent. We'll never be able to go back to a world where we don't have masking, where we don't have physical distancing, because I think COVID-19 is going to be around for a very, very long time, especially if most of our population is not going to be vaccinated. Which is why other premiers are looking at this and saying, we got to do something about this. And last week we told you about uh, the Quebec premier, Francois Legault, who simply said he's going to institute proof of vaccination. You want to go to a restaurant in Quebec? Uh, you want to go to a football game? You want to go to anything where there's going to be people indoors? You have to show proof of vaccination. Now, he hasn't even enacted that yet. 
But we understood that, that the day after he made that announcement that he was about to implement a policy like this, uh, the number of people that were requesting vaccinations more than doubled in the space of 24 hours, which says the message certainly got across. Other governments, though, are not so quickly to be able to do something about this. But so many other people are weighing in on this, including the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, who say that vaccine passports or digital vaccination certificates would actually be a help uh, to prevent future waves of the pandemic from forcing a resurgence of the financially disastrous lockdowns. Joining us to talk about this is Mark Agnew. Mark is the Vice President of Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce. Uh, Mark, great to have you back in the program. Hope you're doing well these days. Yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me back on, Bill. Good to have you with us here. Uh, Perrin Beatty, of course, is the the president of uh, of the chamber. It has been for many, many years. Was very vocal about this. Uh, is is this the official chamber position now that, that that they would suggest that this is a good idea? You're not demanding it, of course, but but you've certainly weighed in on this. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it's something that I think you know we've talked about in previous conversations that there's a whole bunch of tools that we have available to fight COVID, whether it's rapid testing, whether it's, you know, face masks, whether it's, uh, you know, digital health credentials. And at this point, um, government shouldn't be taking any options off the table that could work. Now, what works in different provinces and different you know circumstances will vary a- across the country. And as you rightly pointed out in your introduction, um, we're going to be requiring proof of vaccination for Americans who want to start coming across the border today. And, and and that's the rule. And I, I just, I, I can't understand why, okay, Americans have to show this, but Canadians, not so much. Uh, I want to get back with my life. I want to go to uh, Labor Day as the first Tiger Cat home game uh, this year. Uh, you know, the Argos had their season opener in Calgary the other day. Uh, but you've got to show proof of vaccination to get into ballparks and stadiums in so many different jurisdictions. Why not implicate, or impl- impart something like this for, for people here in Ontario? Uh as 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 Parambini said, he said, "Look, I'm fully vaccinated too, but I'd feel a lot more comfortable going into a restaurant or going to a ball game, knowing that the people around me are vaccinated." And right now, we're not going to know that. Well, and it's, it, it, I mean, the, the personal sort of comfort level of your employees and your you know customers is one thing, but one of the other really critical pieces is that our businesses have been through three waves of successive you know lockdowns, and whenever you have lockdowns, you know there are you know people who. Uh, they're not going to work and they're not able to, you know, sustain their families and their, their livelihoods, right? Whether you're in a, you know, hospitality job or uh, at a restaurant or working at a, you know, sports city. I mean, these are, you know, real people with real jobs and real families at the end of the day. And so by having, again, rapid testing, digital health credentials and other pieces, what that means is we should be able to avoid the same types of lockdowns and measures that we've had in earlier waves of the pandemic. And that can keep the economy going and hopefully it can have people still, you know, be able to support their livelihoods. Well, what's interesting about the stand that the Chamber's taking here, and I find this, uh, I think, very helpful and instructive for people that are on the fence about this, is uh, this is not a philosophical argument as far as the Chamber's concerned. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, whether you like vaccines or not, this is a pragmatic approach to this. Is Look, at lockdowns have crippled the economy. Small businesses especially have been hit very, very hard by this. And we don't want a fourth lockdown. And, you know, the numbers don't lie. You know, we, we talked about this last week on the program. Uh, the number of cases is starting to creep up again to a very uncomfortable number it's not a crisis yet like it was earlier this year but do we want to wait until it gets to be a crisis and then respond to it or are we going to be proactive and i I think the chamber is going down the right road here well and what we're coming out and saying as well is that it's not about having an unfettered uh you know system having things that are protecting privacy you know need to be paramount in this because you need to have also confidence of people in the system that we're talking about they have to be interoperable so that people can, you know, be able to move across provincial boundaries. 
and also too they need to be user centric right we can't have these things as some byzantine uh you know process that no one's actually able to to use i mean the user has to also be kept uh, in mind um earlier this year actually both the federal and provincial uh, privacy commissioners which for those of your uh, reader, uh, listeners who, who don't know i mean these are the people who operate independent of government whose job it is, is to oversee you know the privacy of, of canadians in accordance with the, the laws of the land they come out and they actually gave a bunch of criteria for how that um, government should go about implementing these types of passports, which again, based on user being user centric, protecting privacy. And so these are the things that um, I think are now being talked about. And again, as we think about avoiding fourth waves, this is an option that needs to be on the table. Well, and it's happening in so many other jurisdictions. As we talked about, Mark, we know that you know, as of today, of course, Americans who can show proof of vaccination are allowed across the border to, to vacation or to shop or whatever they want to do. You want to get into an airplane to an international flight, uh, you've got to show proof of vaccination. Uh, we were talking to, actually, some of these even internal. I was talking to a guy yesterday, or last week, rather, on the program, who was actually on holidays in northern Manitoba, and he said, I actually had to show proof of vaccination to get on the plane. And it was really just a flight from Winnipeg up to the north country in Manitoba. So I, I know individual stores and companies and businesses are starting to ask about this right now, but uh, it's, it just seems to me that you're absolutely right. This creates a comfort level for these businesses and for the customers that may want to go back to those businesses. But the question a lot of us are asking, and I'm sure you and your members have heard from this too, is it safe yet? Well, and this is where, again, the multi-layered sort of layered approach comes in. I mean, if you go into an airport, there's not just, you know, the metal detector that they use to keep people secure. There's a whole, you know, catch net of measures that are uh, in place, which, you know, are seen and, and unseen. And I think similarly with how we're going to be able to overcome this pandemic and unfortunately learn to have to, you know, coexist with it. Um, you know, the buzzword everyone's, you know, using, I shouldn't say everyone, but the buzzword that a lot of people who are experts are using is, you know, we will shift from a pandemic to there being endemic, you know, conditions. And so... Um, how do we live and coexist with this? And is, is you know, it, it's a very live question again for people about how do we get back to normal. One of the things I'm hearing, I wanted to just run this past you, and I don't know what you guys have heard from your members across the country. Uh, one of the things about returning to work and some of the businesses reopening, it seems to be a consistent theme, especially in the service industry, restaurant industry and things of that nature. Uh, they're having trouble getting staff because the people who did work there before these shutdowns, some of them are, are not coming back. And one of the reasons we're hearing is safety. Well, I'm not so sure it's a safe environment anymore, and I'm not so sure I want to work in an environment like that anymore. Uh, that's a concern, and it's a concern for those small businesses to try to get enough staff to accommodate the people that want to come back there. You would think that moving in this direction where, you know, the, the customers and the, the employees, the fellow workers in these businesses, if they could show proof of vaccination, that would assuage some of those concerns, I would think. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you're out in a restaurant, you're not going to necessarily know. I mean, you might, you might have your regulars like come in, but you're certainly not going to know a lot of people that are coming in off the street. You don't know, you know, what they're doing outside of that restaurant and what sort of activities they're undertaking. And you don't want to go into work, um, you know, to get a paycheck, but also be exposing, you know, your own personal health and safety and putting that on the line. And it's not even just about those consumer facing environments. I mean, even if you're in an office and you're in a cubicle environment where, you know, the walls aren't very high, um, people are going to want to know that if they're going into that environment that they're going to be safe. What happens if they get on an elevator? I mean, even public transit. I mean, mass public transit is designed to take lots of people in a confined space and move them as efficiently as possible. So these are all sorts of things that people are going to be concerned about quite understandably once we start kind of going back uh, in September potentially to the office. It's a public health issue, uh, and, and as well as a business issue. Uh, I mean, the reason, for instance, you know, if you want to go to Tim Hortons that says no shirt, no shoes, no service, it's public health uh, because 
you know that you, you you're putting people at risk by doing something like that and i mean i got response we talked something about this the, the other day and i got a, an email from one individual one gentleman who said well look at I, I i'm not vaccinated but if you're double vaccinated as you say you are and i am uh, i can't give it to you yes you can I can still get COVID. Uh, I may not be hospitalized, but I could still get it from somebody who's carrying it, even if they're asymptomatic, or I could be carrying it as a result of being in touch with them and pass it on to somebody else. So this, the danger is not gone yet. People have to get that message. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not even just about, you know, you as the uh, as the individual who is exposed. It's been, as you said, who you expose afterwards. If you have an yeah. elderly relative or someone who's immunocompromised in your household, um, you know, th- these are the things that, you know, really do matter. And, you know, I was just reading over the weekend about uh, the, the sort of the the, uh, the long COVIDers, right? And those, these are people who were otherwise, you know, fit and, and healthy beforehand. You know, they, they ran a couple of miles each day and they're suffering the sort of long-term consequences still of having caught, uh, you know, a, a, a a virus that no one ever would have thought at the very beginning could have had such lasting implications for, you know, a, a number of people in the population. Well, I talked to an individual, sadly, who's uh, in that very situation, uh, who's recovered from COVID, was never even hospitalized, but of course there's respiratory problems. And, you know, with this unbearable heat that we've got in Southern Ontario the last couple of days, uh, she can't really go out. She can't breathe. She can't even walk to the mailbox to pick up her stuff because that, that 100 yards or so that she has to walk, it just knocks her out. Uh, and that's as a result of COVID. And we have to take into consideration that, look, I don't want to be the person who's responsible for that individual being sick. Yeah, exactly. And if you're a business owner also who you're trying to get people to come back in you know, to the restaurant, it's a it's a selling feature, I think, in many ways for a lot of clientele to say, hey, well, you know what, if I go in here, I can take my mask off, I can sit at my table, I can, you know, enjoy my time with my, my partner or my friend or whoever, and I'm not going to be thinking every eight seconds about the guy sitting next to me and whether I'm going to catch COVID from him or her. <laughs> So this is the, the position, as I say, uh, you, you guys are looking at this right now and, and saying this would be a good idea. Uh, the chamber doesn't really like to, uh, to go, go, you know, wading, you know, waist deep into the political end of things. I mean, but you will advise and you will make suggestions in situations like this. Uh, how strongly do you want to make this suggestion? Are you, are you hoping other governments come on side with this? Because uh, the federal government's pretty much washed their hands and said it's going to be up to each individual province. Yeah, I mean, we wouldn't say we wouldn't say unless we did want people to come on side with it. Um, one of the things that we think is absolutely critical is that there is an interoperable system, and so even if um, you know government decided, you know what, we don't want to mandate the use of it in you know non-essential consumer-facing environments. I mean, that's you know a choice that you know governments will, will make, but at the same time. Um, you need to create the tools for businesses who do want to use them and also for your you know, residents who do want to travel to other provinces that maybe require them. So it's not just about what happens within your provincial borders, but actually, you know, how do you sort of provide the infrastructure for those who do decide to go down that path? Yeah, that's an interesting point. I mean, if you have a patchwork system, as we seem to have right now, uh, you know, interprovincial travel could be problematic. Well, in some cases, actually, the province might insist on that, and the province you're in doesn't. Uh, it'd be kind of nice if there was some, some consistency, I guess, with a program like this. Yeah, and I mean, another problem that we're going to have to grapple with quite soon, for example, is what do we do with Canadians that are traveling abroad who have been mixed dosed, right, who have gotten Pfizer AZ or, you know, Pfizer Moderna or like whatever the combination may be. Um, This is where, again, it's not just about what happens, you know, in your locale, but are you then enabling Canadians to travel or do other activities that they would otherwise have uh, been able to do in the pre-pandemic era? 
Well, you know, and we've talked about this, uh, you know, as businesses are opening up again. Uh, well, we know what New York City's doing. I mean, they're putting in a policy in place not unlike the province of Quebec is doing. You want to go to a show on Broadway, you want to go to a Yankees game, visit New York, uh, you, you better show proof of vaccination or you're just not going to be allowed in, or restaurants for that matter, too. So different places and, and uh, different strokes for different folks, I guess, to use the old cliche. Uh, but I, I appreciate the, the work that you guys are doing at the Chamber uh, to make sure that people are getting this message. And uh, uh, we talked about the fact that when Premier Legault said he was uh, going to initiate a policy like this the very next day, the uh, number of requests for vaccines doubled, uh, which says that people got the message and understand that, okay, maybe I'm just dragging my heels on this, but maybe it's about time to actually roll up a sleeve. So maybe I'm hoping that uh, that the actions by the Canadian Chamber will have the same sort of effect. Mark, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for the update. Stay well, and we'll talk again soon, I hope. All right, I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Mark Agnew, Vice President of Policy for the Canadian Chamber of Commerce, uh, with their strong suggestion that uh, provincial governments uh, develop some form of policy for proof of vaccination, for access to uh, well, sporting events, restaurants, whatever the case might be. Indoor activities is really what it comes down to. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We uh, pay homage and tribute to, uh, well, what many people are calling the greatest premier in the history of the province of Ontario, the celebrated premier Bill Davis who passed away at age 92 this past weekend. More from Global's Camille Caramali. Current Ontario Premier Doug Ford tweeted, he served the people of Ontario with dignity and class. We will be lowering flags to half-mast across the province in his honour. While Prime Minister Justin Trudeau also passed along his condolences, tweeting, the former Premier of Ontario leaves behind an incredible legacy of service and I have no doubt that the impact of his work will be felt for generations to come. Uh, and indeed it has, and it continues as we go along here. Joining us to talk about this is our good friend Steve Pakin, host of The Agenda on TVO, and the author of, uh, well, I think the definitive uh, biography about Bill Davis. It's called Nation Builder and Not So Bland After All. Steve, uh, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Happy to make time for you, and thanks for giving me the chance to talk about this great man. Incredible man, and, and you and I talked about that as you were uh, writing uh, the biography, and uh, you had the great pleasure. I mean, so many times authors, Steve, when they write things like this, so they're doing it in past tense. Uh, but you had a lot of time to sit down with the former premier as you went through this book, didn't you? I did, but it took an awfully long time to get there. You know, Bill, he was such a modest guy. Yeah. And, and, and uh, you know, we, uh, I must have bugged him for, I mean, not every day for 30 years, but I think on and off over 30 <laughs> years to cooperate with me and, and give me an interview to talk about, or give me multiple interviews to do the book. And he finally agreed to, but not till he was about 85 years old, I think. And I think part of it was his own modesty, and I think part of it was that as the years went on, he just thought to himself, well, who really cares anymore? And I tried to impress upon him that he was, he was a quintessentially singular figure in Ontario and Canadian history, and that, you know, ultimately, I kind of, I kind of you know, threatened him a little bit, actually, if truth <laughs> be told. I, I kind of said, you have a duty to history to talk to somebody. It doesn't have to be me, but, but, but we need to get the record of your life down in the pages of a book so that younger people who come along and want to find out about you will know. And eventually, uh, I prevailed upon him, and it was at that point that I think we really became close and great friends, and it was really a, a great joy of my life to have had that relationship with him. 
How difficult was it to, for him to open up to you? I mean, you guys knew each other, of course, for, for many, many years. Uh, but, but, you know, to actually bear his soul, as you mentioned, he was, he was very humble. Uh, he, you know, his, 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 his cliche, his standard was always bland is good. Uh, but he was anything but bland, as you said in the book. Uh, but, uh, you know, it was, was it easy for him to, 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 to recount some of those things that you wanted to talk about? I think that was one of the reasons why he put me off for so long, because he knew that if I was going to do a book on his life, I would really have to talk about some things that were were very painful to him. For for example, Bill, I think a lot of people don't remember anymore, or maybe never knew in the first place. Mr. Davis, his first wife died when she was mm-hmm. 31 years old, and he was a widower with four children under the age of seven. Now, he never talked about that with, with anybody. I remember talking to his second wife, the woman who, who frankly saved his life, Kathleen Davis, the woman he was married to for almost 60 years, and he, and he barely talked to her about it. And so, uh, you know, I understand why he wanted to put me off for as long as he did, but eventually, I guess, by his mid-80s, he got to the point where he felt he could discuss some of these things. And so that was one of the real, that was one of the real joys of writing the book, was that, he, uh, you know, he got to a point in his life where he felt he could open up about things that he'd never talked about before, and I was grateful that he chose me to, to talk to about those things. Well, that's... Uh part of the charm of, of the books that you've written. I mean, because you did the same thing with, well, his predecessor, John Robarts, a uh, very insightful book. And, and you, you talk about the agony and the ecstasy of public life. And I guess, you know, I'm sure that Bill Davis was aware of that and realized that, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe it's about time I told those stories. You know, it's a strange thing, but there were three really great premiers all around the same time in Canadian history. And I'm talking now about Bob Stanfield and Alan Blakeney and Bill Davis from Nova Scotia, Saskatchewan, and Ontario, respectively. And they all had tragedies in their lives. They all three lost their wives at very young ages and had to kind of negotiate their way through political careers with young kids um, and, and get through that tragedy somehow. And, of course, they all did, and they all became really quite great figures in Canadian political history. But, but one can only imagine how difficult that must have been and it's one of the reasons, Bill, that I dedicated the book uh, to Mrs. Davis, to Kathleen Davis, because she really was, she was the person who, who took into her heart his four kids from his first marriage, and then they had a fifth, and, and you know, he doesn't become who he becomes without her. She's the secret weapon to his whole story. And that, and that's the personal side of things, and it's a great story in and of itself. Uh, and, and I encourage people, if they haven't read the book already, to go and get a copy of it and, and, and get that story. Let's talk about Bill Davis, the politician, though. He was uh, the education minister in the Robarts government and, of course, uh, then became premier and uh, served so explicitly. I was talking to somebody that yesterday about this, Steve, uh, relating some of his accomplishments. I said, this is the premier uh, that uh, created TVO, you know all about that, of course, uh, founded the community college system, which has become a, a, the backbone of our education and economic development system these days, established rent controls. He was the first elected leader in North America to create a ministry of the environment. And, and my friend said, that doesn't sound like a progressive conservative premier. But I said, that was the magic of him. He was conservative, but he was progressive. Uh, he never forgot that. And, and, and that was, I think, one of the guiding... Pre- he was guided by, by, by pragmatism, I think, as opposed to ideology. Uh, absolutely right, and he always would correct me when I said, now, Mr. Davis, as a conservative premier, and he was always interrupting me, he would say, no, progressive conservative, because he did think it important to have that broad, moderate middle of the political spectrum all covered off. And, of course, Bill, six years of his 14-year premiership was spent in a minority parliament, 
which meant that he couldn't get anything done unless he cooperated with one of the other two parties. Mm -hmm. So he did from time to time have to tack left in order to get the support of the NDP, and other times he had to tack right to get the support of the liberals, which were a more conservative party actually back then. And, and, And that was... I guess that was one of the great strengths that he had, was that he was not ideological and doctrinaire. He could reach out to his political opponents, not enemies, you'll notice I said, political opponents. He thought they were all there to do the people's business, and he didn't demonize people for doing that, even if they were in other parties. He'd joke about how they were, quote-unquote, philosophically misguided, but he didn't <laughs> think they were evil. And, and they got the people's business done. And, you know, Bill, if you're listening to this right now and you live in an apartment... Your rent doesn't go up 50 or 100% a year because Bill Davis brought in rent review 45 years ago, and that system basically remains intact. If you like going to baseball games at the Sky Dome, well, he made the decision to build the Sky Dome and, and to put it in downtown Toronto because he didn't want the city rolling up its sidewalks at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and everybody escaping to the suburbs. And if you're one of the, oh, I'm going to guess by now, millions of people to have attended a college in this province, Uh, George Brown or Humber or Seneca or wherever, there's 20-plus of them all over the province, you can thank him because he was the education minister who got that done in the middle 60s. So there there are very few aspects of Ontario society today that he doesn't somehow have his mitts on. That's why he was a significant transformational premier. Talk to us about the the politics within the politics. So you mentioned about uh, in a minority parliament, and we always figure, oh, they're good for a year or so. He made them work. Uh, And and I know you've talked oftentimes, Steve, about the the relationship between uh, Bill Davis and and Bob Nixon, who was the liberal leader for many years, uh, and and David Lewis for the NDP for a period of time, too. as you say, polar opposites in many ways, but there was a, a, a respect. I mean, we've talked about the concern, I think, the, the bemoaning the lack of civility in politics these days. Uh, they were opponents, not enemies, as you just mentioned, and uh, he was able to reach across the aisle, as they say in the political circles, to be able to get things done with those two individuals. Well, his relationship with Bob Nixon, uh, you know, uh, truth be told, was, was testy much of the time. Yeah. You know, the two of them ran against each other in 71 and 75, and they were bruising campaigns. He was very competitive. I don't want you to, to, to be left with the impression that he wasn't a tough campaigner. And, and, you know, he was competitive and he wanted to win. And, you know, he had a, he had a, a tense relationship with Bob Nixon. But at the end of the day, civil. I remember... Oh, gosh, what year was it? might have been six or seven years ago that Bob Nixon was presented with the Order of Ontario. And even though they hadn't spoken for years, Mr. Davis called him at his home and congratulated him for it. Um, You mentioned um, uh, Stephen Lewis. Stephen Lewis and Bob Ray were both NDP leaders, and yet they are two of Bill Davis's closest friends. Now, how many other conservatives, excuse me, progressive conservative politicians (laughs) across the country, can you say that two of their best friends were leaders of the opposition? Um, and in the NDP, uh, you know, that's the kind of guy he was. He just wasn't, he wasn't about the politics of personal destruction. He was about civility and decency. My gosh, Bill, that's the word that keeps coming up when I talk to people about him. He was a thoroughly decent man. And boy, do we need more of that in politics today. Well, and you can always tell when, when you talk to the people, not just on the other side of the aisle, but the people that were behind closed doors on those cabinet tables. I know uh, former Attorney General Roy McMurtry had wonderful things to say. I had the pleasure of uh, getting to know Dr. Robert Elgy quite well. Dr. Elgy, of course, was the first chair of the Greenbelt Council, and my wife served on that for many, many years. And uh, and, and you sit down there and talk to Dr. Elgy about the Bill Davis years, and uh, he had great respect for him. Didn't always agree. Uh, he, he told me Bill Davis used to, to call Dr. Elgy. He says, you're just my 
little socialist, aren't you? Uh, but, uh, it, yeah, but we need you guys in cabinet, so you get along. But he said it was incredible working with this guy, and, and your point's well taken. I mean, you know, this idea that well, I'm bland, and you figure, okay, he's kind of a, you know, just a, a guy that can be pushed over. He wasn't. He was very strong and determined, uh, as, as Dr. Elgy told me. I knew exactly what he wanted to do, uh, but he, he did it with a velvet glove. He did not steamroll over anybody. You know, I've got a cute little Bob Elgy story here uh, to tell you as well, Phil. Uh, Bob Elgy, you're quite right. He was a very he was very much more on the progressive side of the progressive conservative yeah. party. And at one point, Mr. Davis needed to make a cabinet shuffle, and he went to Bob Elgy and he said, "I'm afraid I'm going to have to shuffle you out of the Ministry of Labor to something else." And Mr. Elgy said to him, Dr. Elgy said to him, "Oh, there's just one more thing I'd like to get through. Can you just leave me here for another year?" To which Mr. Davis responded. Robert, I think we've tested the Tory core of this province long enough, don't you? <laughs> and it was a great point because the fact is that every time Mr. Davis moved left on something in order to solve a problem or get an issue done, he knew that he was testing the sort of rock rib, small c conservative, rural Tory core of the party. Uh, but then there were other times where, for example, he'd be on the campaign trail and he would, you know, give an impassioned speech about how important it was to keep the Queen. And as long as I am the premier of this province, nobody's going to be getting rid of the queen as the head of uh, state for our country. Now, nobody wanted to, <laughs> but, but Mr. Davis would give that speech because he knew it played so well uh, in rural Ontario with the base and the core of his party. So, you know, his ability to sort of tack left and tack right as needs be in order to occupy that broad swath of the middle was uh, part of his political genius. Talk to me about how much he loved his, his city of Brampton. Uh, I, I've had occasion to spend some time over there with some people over the last number of years, and even long after he left politics, Steve, uh, he was considered, right up until today, probably for, forevermore, royalty in that city, isn't he? Uh, agreed, and here's what's amazing about the kind of guy Mr. Davis was. You know, he was born in 1929 into a city of, no, excuse me, into the town of Brampton, yeah. which might have had 5,000 people, that is its population back then, and I bet you 96% of them were white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. That's the world he grew up in. And yet, as he watched Brampton change over the years to a bustling, diverse, multicultural metropolis of whatever it is now, almost 700,000 people, you know, he he embraced it all. Uh, you know, the, the, the guy just... Um, he didn't have a prejudice bone in his body. Uh, I remember, for example, when uh, Margaret Birch, he appointed the first female cabinet minister in Ontario history in 1972. And you can imagine cabinet meetings with, say, 27 men and Margaret Birch. And I remember asking her, you know, what, what kind of sexism did you have to put up with um, to be in that kind of atmosphere? And he, Margaret Birch's answer came back right away. She said, oh, there was none. I never experienced it. I said, really? How's that possible? And she said, because Mr. Davis would not have put up with it. I mean, he set a tone from the top that there were going to be women in his cabinet, there were going to be Jews in his cabinet, there were going to be people from diverse backgrounds in his cabinet, some of the first ever. And, and you know, it's really quite, it's quite something that a guy who grew up in, in such a non-diverse background ended up embracing what Ontario became. And it speaks very well of him, I think. Steve, as, as you were talking to, to Mr. Davis and, and, and writing the book and doing the interviews, did you get the sense that, that he had a full grasp of his place in history, the contribution he had made? I, I know he's a very humble man, and he's, he, he was not boastful in any way, shape, or form, but uh, you know, you talk to political observers these days, too, and they say, look, he set the standard for how a premier should govern a province, and, and I think many people still feel that way. 
I agree with you, and it's funny. You know, he, he, I tried to get him to boast a little bit sometimes about some of his achievements, and about the best I could do, Bill, was when he said, I'm not uncomfortable with the decisions I made. I'm sure I made a few mistakes along the way, but I can't think of any at the moment. That was the kind of sprightly sense of humor he took. He, he, you know, of course he cared about his place in history. They all have egos in politics. Sure. But, but his was so well under control. It was really in check. And, you know, he used to, um, he used to chew on that pipe all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And, and he had that sphinx-like look on his face. And I think part of that was because he liked to listen to people. He liked to listen to the more conservative wing of his party. He liked to listen to the more progressive wing of his party. He liked to judge the competing interests and then find the sweet spot. And he could do that while chewing on his pipe and just thinking and listening. And those are really great talents. (laughs) You know, most people get into politics because they want to make speeches. Uh, That actually wasn't him. He got in because he wanted to make decisions, and he wanted to sort of govern effectively. And he didn't really care. You know, it was a good day for him, Bill Kelly, when, when he didn't make the front page of the paper. Yeah, yeah. He didn't care about making the big, brassy headlines. He, it was really a very steady-as-she-go, uh, steady-as-she-go. And uh, he was content with that. Well, I'm glad you had the opportunity to talk with him and sit down with him and actually put pen to paper uh, and, and, and tell that story, because it's a story that ha- ha- needs to be told. It's, it's a fabulous book. Uh, it's called Nation Builder and Not So Bland After All. It's uh, the biography of uh, the late, now, uh, Bill Davis, uh, Premier of the Province of Ontario. Steve, thanks for the great work that you've done, and thanks for spending some time with us today as we, we reminisce about a, a great man. I really appreciate you giving me the time, because there's, there's just a lot. You know, he's been out of public life three and a half decades. And there's lots of people who just don't remember him. So I'm glad to have the opportunity to remember him. Thank you. Thank you. Stay well, Steve. We'll talk again soon. Okay. Steve Bacon from TVO. The Bill Kelly Show. Weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.